Um, I would like to pick up on some of the things we shared this morning, but move it in a little bit different direction. I want to read a passage from Matthew 28. And Jesus spoke this to his disciples. He poured three and a half years into these people. When they were heading to Jerusalem, on their way to the upper room uh, discourse in the Last Supper, they started arguing among themselves as to who would be the biggest cheese in the kingdom, who would be the one who would get to sit by Jesus' right hand and left. He poured his life into them. They're still arguing over petty things at the last minute. Very broken, guys. And, 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 and then they all left him at the time of the crucifixion. Peter uh, denied him. It's an interesting um, article written by Dorothy Sayers called The Triumph of Easter. And she talks about Peter's denial and Peter's very arrogant. These other guys, it wouldn't surprise me if they betrayed you or denied you. Um, I, I know them pretty well. They're all messed up. But not me, Lord. I'm with you. Well, actually, he wasn't as self-aware as he thought, was he? He denies Jesus. And Dorothy Sayers says, isn't it interesting that when Jesus rose again, the angel said to the women who came to the tomb, go tell the disciples and Peter. Make sure Peter knows he's included because God's love reaches wide and deep. And then Dorothy Sayers says, isn't it too bad Judas didn't stick around? This is the depth of his love. But these messed up guys, Jesus is raised from the dead. Some of them don't believe it's, he's really raised when they hear the reports till he shows up. Thomas says, I got to see the, the scars. And Jesus says, here I am, Thomas. And he says, my Lord and my God. And it's to this group of broken people that Jesus says this, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The missional features of what it means to be a follower of Christ are not merely for the gifted. They're for all of us, broken as we are, to one degree or another. Even the, the parable of the uh, sower, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. doesn't make any difference. Every one of you is strategically placed, and God wants to use you to some degree or another, some to a large degree, some to a small degree. But every one of you matters when it comes to kingdom work. That's what I want to talk about this evening. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we talk this evening, Again, that your Holy Spirit would take the crumbs that are offered and apply them to the hearts of each person that's here. But I pray that every person, when they hear some of these stories, would start to get excited about how much fun it is to participate with you in your mission in the world. I pray, Father, that nobody would use the fact that we may not be gifted as an excuse but instead we would learn from our mistakes. We would learn from our growing experiences. We would learn from one another. And we would engage broken and on the mend in this wonderful mission, participating with your Holy Spirit's work in the world. To that end, I pray you would use us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. John Stott, the great pastoral theologian, the last time he spoke at Wheaton College, Edmund Chapel, seats 2,500, was packed. They had microphones set up throughout the auditorium. Stott spoke for 10 minutes, and then he fielded questions from the students. One student asked, Dr. Stott, how do you reach the postmodernists for Jesus? Now, in the academic world, postmodernists Postmodernism is virtually over. It's gone. People still talk about it, but even in that day when they were, um, more people talked about it than I think actually read about it. 
was like the student who was asked, have you ever read War and Peace? And he said, no, but I wrote a book report on it once. I think that's how it went. But Stock gives a tight definition of postmodernism, a tight definition of deconstruction. Then he says the best way to reach a postmodernist is to be an authentic person. As soon as he said that, I went into existential despair because I'm not an authentic person. I believe in the high ideal of love, but I've had sharp words of people I say I love most. I believe in justice, but there have been times I've been unfair in my treatment of others. I see some behavior in somebody over here, and it's contemptuous to me, and then I catch myself doing the same thing half hour later. I don't know if you guys have that experience, but when I heard Stott say, you reached a postmodernist by being an authentic person, I thought I probably won't be reaching many postmodernists. I go shuffling out of the auditorium that day, and I'm feeling kind of bad about myself. And when I got to the narthex of the auditorium, it dawned on me, I, I don't think there's ever been anybody but one who could say, you know, I lived this human life the way it was intended to be lived. I think only Jesus could say, I've lived it completely authentically. Well, if that's true, then all of a sudden the question changes. How does an inauthentic person begin to approximate authenticity? And I think it starts by being honest about our inauthenticity. There's a great passage in Ephesians 4.12. It says the work of the pastor teacher is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The Greek word there for equip, katartismos, is a very interesting word in, the, in New Testament times. It had many, many uses, but primarily two. The first was a, not, a, a medical term. It was used by doctors when they would talk about setting a broken bone. And I think that the role of the pastor is, in, in, in one sense, to help broken people begin to mend, mending the broken. The second use was a nautical term, rig a ship for full sail so that it could depart from the harbor and fulfill the purposes for which it was designed. Mend and deploy. That's the work of the ministry in the world. Everybody's life matters. Kierkegaard one time told this parable. He said, some people think that the pastor is the performer and the congregation are the audience. In reality, he says, it's not that way. God is the audience. The congregation are the performers. And the pastor, he's just the prompter reminding them of their lines when they go out to do the real ministry in the world. This is interesting. But this idea of mend and deploy, it's a pattern that is common in Scripture. We saw it this morning with Manasseh, in a sense, mend, forgive, get past the brokenness. Sitting with our brokenness is not the end. It gets kind of sick if you're not moving beyond the brokenness towards something like deploying. So mend, Manasseh, and Ephraim, be fruitful. Get on with the fruitful purposes of life. When, when God calls Paul on the Damascus Road, Paul asks two questions when Christ appears to him. Who are you, Lord? He'll spend the rest of eternity getting to know the answer to that question. And then second question is what? What would you have me do? Paul will mend in relationship with Christ. And then he'll discover what he's to do when Christ deploys him to the world. Moses has it in reverse order. God first tells him what to do. I want you, Moses, to go down to Egypt and tell Pharaoh to let all the children of Israel go and follow you out into the wilderness, and I'll meet you on this mountain. That, that's an odd thing. They estimate two million, maybe two and a half million Jews were in Egypt at that time. That'd be like God saying to me, Jerry, I want you to go talk to Mayor Rahm Emanuel and ask him for the right side of Chicago so you could take him up to Sheboygan, Wisconsin. 
And Moses rightly says, okay, that's what you want me to do? Who am I going to say sent me? I can't just go to him and say I was out in the wilderness in Midian and I was talking to a burning bush and he said, go tell Pharaoh, let the children of Israel go. He's going to ask me who sent me. And God says, tell them I am who I am has sent you. This is what I want you to do. This is who I am in the process. I am Lord of the universe. I will be with you. I will not deploy you to some activity without resourcing you with my character, my nature, and who I am. You see it in John 15. Jesus says, abide in me. That's where we mend. And go bear fruit. You see it in Mark chapter 3, verse 14. And Jesus appointed 12. The Greek word there for appointed, poieo. He made 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. And you constantly see this pattern repeating throughout the Bible. Mend and deploy. Mend the brokenness. Not as an end in itself. Mend the brokenness that you might, one, go out and preach the gospel to your friends with authenticity because you know the power of the gospel to transform lives firsthand. And don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. I think, too, that when we go out, we could recognize that Jesus um, ministered to people with the disciples at his hand. Then he sent out the 12, six teams of two. Then he sent, brought them back and he let them evaluate what went on to learn from their mistakes, to grow. Then he sent out 35 teams of two, 70. And they came back and they learned. I don't know how many times he did it. But it's interesting, isn't it, when Jesus raised from the dead, within a few weeks, the fledgling church had 5,000 members. You had 3,000 at Pentecost, and you had 2,000 when Peter and John healed the man at the beautiful gate. And the people gathered around and they preached the gospel. 5,000. What if you went out and started a church, and within about two weeks, 5,000 people were at your door? If that happened to me, I'd pull out what little hair I've got left. But the interesting thing to me is that when Jesus rose from the dead, he had sent out 12, he sent out 70. When he rose from the dead, he appeared to more than 500, which means he left them a 1 in 10 infrastructure. There was a sense that they would be able to manage this crowd because everybody felt franchised to participate in a growing ministry where God's presence was clearly there. Isn't that exciting? And each of us have a part. So I want to go through and just tell you a bunch of stories about people coming to faith. It doesn't always go well. I think I told you when I was at your church, if you're afraid of striking out, don't play baseball. But if you don't play baseball, you'll never know the joy of hitting a home run. I want to tell you stories for one reason and one reason only, to get you excited and to see possibilities in your life of where God might be able to use you. I think all of us should be living Acts, the book of Acts kind of lives. Acts just ends abruptly at Acts chapter 28. There's no period at the end of that book. We are Acts 29 and Acts chapter 30 and Acts chapter 31. The work is going on the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of his disciples. So let's look at types of evangelism. And I'm going to go from a, a fairly aggressive type initially that might not be comfortable for most of you. Don't use it then. I'll go to another one that is a little bit easier, and then I'll go to a last one that's easiest of all. And I just want to show you just different examples. So the first one I would call it contact evangelism. We see it modeled when Jesus just talks to the woman at the well. He's never met her before. He starts having a conversation. We see it when Paul in Acts chapter 17 goes to the Agora in Athens. He's just talking to people on the street. It's a valid method. It's not everybody's method. Jesus 
asks the woman at the well for a drink. He starts with questions. She's shocked because he steps over um, traditional lines, cultural lines. And that opens up the conversation. But he begins with what's there, water. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Anyway, this contact evangelism. I, I, I take students out once a month at Wheaton College. We go into Chicago. We used to go to Wrigleyville. Wrigleyville's got a lot of bars around uh, uh, um, Wrigley Field. You guys know that area. And we'd be out there in the middle of the winter. You can't smoke in a bar. And there's some people who are so addicted to nicotine, they've got to smoke. But their friends aren't going to go out and stand outside in zero-degree weather while their friend smokes a cigarette. But if I saw a guy lighting up a cigarette outside, I'd immediately go up to him and say, hey, I'm here talking to people about Jesus. Do you mind if I talk to you for at least that long? <laughs> Almost always they'd say, yeah, they're not doing anything. And then they would smoke their cigarette and sometimes go in. But sometimes they'd light up a second one. And I'd know I was making some progress. I don't think ever when they lit up three cigarettes, they lit up three cigarettes without coming to Jesus. Didn't happen all that often, but almost every time somebody lit a third cigarette, they came to faith. <laughs> they got intrigued. They got intrigued. There was one time even where one of the guy's friends came out to find out why he was outside so long, and I was able to share Jesus with that guy too and have this new Christian say what just happened to him just a few minutes earlier. Sometimes we'll go into the Ogilvy Transportation Center, and we'll just go talk to people who are waiting in the food court. Um, they're, they're waiting for a train. They don't have anything going on. Maybe they're waiting for somebody to pick them up because they just came in from a train. And we'll walk up to him and say, we're here talking to people about Jesus. Do you mind if we talk with you? I don't think if you're going to go do contact evangelism, you need to pussyfoot around and say like, oh, isn't it a nice day? Gee, isn't the paint on the Ogilvy Transportation Building nice? You know, something like that. Just feel free to say to people you're sharing Jesus with them. I find 60% of the people I ask that to, they are willing to talk. I have never found it, by the way, easier to talk to people about Jesus than today. You know why? Our secular society has so suppressed spiritual conversation. And yet I believe Augustine was right when he said, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. People want to talk about these things. And if you can engage openly and honestly, you can often have great discussions. So I remember one time being with some students, this was this year, and I walked up to this guy last September, walked up to this guy and I said, I, I'm a professor at Wheaton College, I'm here with some students, we're talking to people about Jesus, do you mind if we, if we talk with you? He said, I'm Jewish. I said, that's how Jesus started out. <laughs> and he laughed too, he thought it was funny, so we couldn't be too wacko, we could have fun. And he said, I said, what's your name? He said, Daniel. I said, Daniel, that means who is like God. I'm, excuse me, God is my judge. I said, that's a great name. And, and as we talked, he said, listen, this is our high holy day today. I said, which one is it? He said, Yom Kippur. I said, oh, the day of atonement. Do you believe your sins have been atoned for? He said, you can't know that. I said, oh, the reason why Jesus came was to tell us that our sins could be forgiven and we could have the hope of eternal life. He said, listen, you're not going to convert me. I'm not going to change. I'm orthodox. I said, you are? Then how come you're not in the temple tonight at Yom Kippur? There's been some change going on. I think you've probably lightened up a little bit. And we started talking. I found out he was a playwright. And I said, tell me about your plays. This is fascinating to me. Virtually every character he shared with me was a character in crisis, trying to find how to make sense of life. And every character he talked about was an opportunity for us to expand how the gospel would work. This is incredible. We talked with him for about 25 minutes. This was a guy who didn't want to talk, right? But actually, 
when you entered into the conversation, he was very interested. He said, I've got to finally catch my train, but I've enjoyed this conversation. I said, Daniel, what's your middle name? He said, it's Joshua. I said, do you know what Joshua means? He said, no, what? I said, it's Jesus' name, Yeshua. And it means God is my salvation. Your name is the gospel. It means God is my judge, but Jesus is my salvation. He go, I never thought about that. That's what he, happened when he left. I wish I could tell you he came to Christ, but the conversation wasn't that difficult. I was at College of DuPage. I used to teach philosophy there for 10 years. And I was at COD one time with a bunch of Wheaton students. This was more recently. And, and, and I, I don't know how many years, maybe, maybe seven or eight years ago. And, and, and I'm walking by this table in the cafeteria. There's a woman sitting there reading a book. The, the print in it was different than anything I'd ever seen before. It wasn't, it wasn't Hebrew, it wasn't Greek, it wasn't Arabic. And I just said, please forgive me, but I'm curious as I'll get out what this book is. She said, I'm, I'm, I'm a Hindu, and this is a, a Hindu devotional. I think she said it was Sanskrit. Maybe I'm wrong. You guys would know. Uh, Matthews, I'll defer to you on it. But anyway, she, I said, wow. Would you mind if I asked you a few questions about Hinduism? I said, I read the Vedas and the Upanishads years ago, but I don't remember anything about them. And she said, no, sit down. And I said, well, for example, what do you people believe happens to you after you die? She says, oh, we're different than you Westerners. We, we um, cremate our dead. I said, oh, no, no, I'm not asking you how you deposit or d dispense with human remains. I'm asking... What do you believe happens to you after you die? And she says, oh, well, we believe in millions of gods. And these gods watch everything you see and everything you say and everything you do. And if you do well, you can move up the ladder, so to speak. But if you do poorly, they will judge you. Her words, you'll come back a dog and a cat. Now, you have a conversation with one Hindu, you wouldn't judge all Hindus by that same standard. We know as Christians, there's a lot of stripes of Christianity. You can have cops, you could have Orthodox, Catholic. You got stripes within Catholic. You've got Protestants, all kinds of Protestants. And, and so it is with the other religions as well. But nevertheless, this is her view of it, and I'm talking to her. And so she said, so you come back as a dog or a cat. I said, you believe in millions of gods? She said, yeah. And they're watching everything you do and say and think? She said, yeah. And they're going to judge you? She said, yeah. I said, that is scary. She said, we live in fear. I said, do you believe in the Christian God? She said, we believe in every God. I said, do you believe Jesus is God? She said, we believe in every God. I said to her, she said, he, he said, you don't have to be afraid. She said, I know. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I said, how did you know that? She said, I saw the movie, The Passion of the Christ. And drawing from something in our culture that she had seen that in film, she was troubled by this, somewhat hopeful even by it, and nobody had come along to talk to her about it till that day. We had a great conversation. She didn't pray with me to trust Christ, but she moved closer in that direction. Sometimes we find out that maybe a person does come to Christ with us, sometimes they don't. But sometimes you may find that your number five talking to this person, and it'll be 12 people before they come to faith. We're under orders from God. We follow the prompts. I talked with you about that when I was at your church. Okay, so that's contact evangelism. You go out and purposefully, like Paul in the Agora, or Jesus with the woman at the well, engage in a person with a person in conversation. Most of the people that do this kind of contact evangelism are somewhat extroverted. So if you're more introverted, it may not be your method. Don't worry about it. But if you're extroverted, go have fun. All right? Second kind of evangelism is what I call context 
evangelism. Context evangelism. You find yourself in a context and the doors open up in that context. I think we should begin our days each day. Lord, you said the fields are white unto harvest. That means there's people out there who want to know. You said the problem is there aren't enough people willing to tell. I'm willing to tell because I'm overwhelmed how you are meeting me at the place of my brokenness and transforming my life. I want other people to know. We don't share the gospel because the church needs more members. We don't share the gospel because the church needs more giving units. We share the gospel because broken people need to have hope. And we get to tell them they're loved by God and they can be forgiven. So I pray each day, Lord, I'm willing to be one of the ones in your harvest. If you're preparing hearts, lead me to the people whose hearts you're preparing. And then I watch in the context I find myself. So this is a fun one. I, I, I'm on an airplane almost every week. And Wheaton College sends me off different places for different things. And they arrange limo rides to O'Hare. So I was flying back from something, and I needed to get to the college because I was going to teach a class. And the limo driver picks me up at O'Hare, and we get in the car. His name was Hafiz Muhammad. And he looks at the thing, and he says, I'm taking you to Wheaton College. What, what, what do you do there? I said, I'm a professor. He said, what do you teach? I said, my degree is in philosophy of religion. He said, what religion are you? I said, I'm a Christian. What religion are you? He said, I'm a Muslim. And then he said to me, what's the difference between Christianity and Islam? That's context evangelism. This comes up in the conversation. I'm not going out looking for it. In some senses, it comes to me. So I said to him, Hafiz, listen, I've read about half of the Quran. I haven't read the whole thing. So I'll defer to you in matters of the Quran. But as far as Christianity, I, I, I have a fair grasp of it, and I'd be happy to share with you some of the differences. I said, one of the big differences, though, I think it's in Surah 3 or Surah 6, I said, in the Quran, it says, Muslims do not believe in a God of Trinity. So that's a big difference, because we're monotheistic Trinitarians, and you are not. And I said, let me see if I can ask you some questions to show you the difference. Number one, do you believe God's a contingent being or a non-contingent being? I didn't share this story with you when I was at your church, did I? No. Do you believe God's a contingent being or a non-contingent being? Oftentimes, Muslims will say to you, what do you mean by contingent? And you have to explain, contingent means there's a cause for God, that he has needs outside of himself, that he's not... Um, um, just independent and self-existent. And once they understand, they always say he's non-contingent. Second question, do you believe God's a God of love? I've had this conversation with at least 200 Muslims. You wouldn't expect them to say that God was a God of love. From what I know about Islam, I might have expected God's good or God's just or God's merciful but in every conversation that I've had like this with a Muslim, they always say, yes, I believe he's a God of love. So my next question is, who's the object of his love? And they're reduced to saying creation. We are the objects of his love. But then I say to them, if God needs us to fulfill his nature, then God's a contingent being and not a non-contingent being, and you've got a contradiction in your theology. Because relational attributes in a non-contingent being presuppose that relationship must be necessary in that being. And all of a sudden, Hafiz says, I'm tracking with you. It was a moment of disequilibrium for him. And almost without exception, every Muslim I've gotten that far with, they have this as a moment of disequilibrium. How do they make sense of the incongruity that's inherent in their theology? So then I went on with Hafiz after he said, I'm tracking with you. No less than 18 times in this conversation, Hafiz said, I'm tracking with you. So I went on and I said, Hafiz, the reason why this is so important for Christians is that we believe the God of the universe is a God of love. 
And consequently, he loves us. And we live our lives in some sort of dementia as if we don't have awareness of this love. I said, now, there was a man named C.S. Lewis. You knew that was going to come in here somewhere. There was a man named C.S. Lewis who in mere Christianity wrote, just because you're a Christian, you don't have to believe everything about the other religions is necessarily false. But if you are a Christian, you do have to believe those things that are unique to Christianity are true and the other religions are false. All of us are closer to any person with religious interests than we are to the materialist who tries to suppress that whole side of life. It's interesting that the sociologists remind us virtually all cultures are religious cultures. I would even say the materialistic West is kind of religious because we're uh, devoted to our things. Well, anyway, I said to him, that the C.S. Lewis had said this, so there's a lot of things we share in common. There's a German philosopher of religion named Rudolf Otto. C.S. Lewis uh, gives the outline of Otto's book. You could read it yourself. It's a brilliant book, his idea, um, the idea of the holy. But he outlines the central ideas of that book in the introductory chapter to his book, The Problem of Pain. And I said to Hafiz, Otto says these three things are common to all the great world religions. All the great world religions believe in some divine essence. They may define it differently if they're an animist, a pantheist, a polytheist, a dualist, a monotheist, or a monotheistic trinitarian, but they believe in some sort of transcendent other. I said, second, all the great world religions believe in a moral code that they fail to keep. And he said, I'm tracking with you. I said, thirdly, all the great world religions believe the divine essence is a custodian of the moral code. And if we failed to keep the moral code, we've somehow offended the divine essence. He said, I am tracking with you. He said, I believe in the supernatural. I believe in life after death. He said, I believe in hell and I don't want to go there. And I'm doing the best I can to make sure I don't go there. I said, Hafiz, do you believe the divine being is perfect? He said, I do. I said, then how is your best doing? He said, I live in fear. I said, well, here's the difference between Christianity and Islam. Christianity says man can do nothing to fix what's broken in him. But God who loves it fixes it for us in Christ. And the reason why Jesus came, as Christians understand it, as it's revealed in the Bible, is that he came to demonstrate his love to us, which is unconditional. He came to pursue us. He came to forgive us of our sins. And he came to enter into our life as Lord to bring order out of the chaos we've made of things. He said, that's the most comforting thing I've ever heard. And Hafiz Muhammad gave his heart to Jesus in that limo, praying out loud with me to trust Christ. So then we started doing some follow-up stuff with Hafiz. So the next week, I'm in a limo. And the driver is another Muslim named Razi. Well, I'm really, my, my, the, the sales of my life are full with that event the week before, so I think it's going to be exactly the same the next week, right? It's always going to work uniformly. No, it didn't. I started talking to Razi. He wanted to know the difference between Christianity and Islam. I start sharing with him, and I said, Jesus is God. He says, Jesus is not God. The prophet has said, Jesus is not God. I said, Hafiz, I'm, I'm, excuse me, Razi, I can take you to a copy of the Bible that was written out 400 years before your Quran was even written. And in that copy of the Bible, I can take you to the very page where Jesus says he's God. He said, he is not God. The prophet said, he is not God. I said, Razi, have you read the Injil? And he said, no. I said, Razi, the prophet said you're to read the Injil. 
How come you haven't read the Injil? Do you know what the Injil is? Four Gospels. Four Gospels. Every Muslim is supposed to read them. And he said, well, I, I don't know. I said, don't be so dogmatic about what the prophet says until you start obeying what the prophet says. I said, by the way, I happen to have a quarter of the Injil with me. Would you like it? He said, yeah. And when the ride was over, I gave him a copy of the Gospel of John. <laughs> so anyway, you can have fun with these things. Let me give you, <laughs> let me give you a couple more. I had ordered breakfast. I was teaching out at Biola University, and I'd ordered breakfast from room service, and I was just finishing up my quiet time. And Juana, the woman working for the food service, comes in the room to put the food down, and she says, how are you this morning? I said, I'm fine. She looks, and she says, is that a Bible? I'd just been reading in my Bible. She said, yeah. I, I mean, I said, yeah. She said, my grandfather used to read the Bible. I said, really? He was a person of faith. She said, very deep faith. I said, I bet he prayed for you. She said, I bet he did too. I said, then maybe we're having these conversations right now because he prayed for you. And I was able to share the gospel with her. There's a context. She came to my room. I wasn't looking for her. She saw the Bible. She had had a grandfather who prayed for her. The door opened, and there you go. It's contact. So I want to give you one last fun one before I go to friendship evangelism. Um, when, when I, my life was so messed up. I'm, I'm still goofy, but it was really messed up when I was young. Um, I used to take a gun to school when I was in school. I grew up in South Central Los Angeles. I was involved in student government. I was student body president at my high school. I played football. I went to church with my parents, even though I wasn't a Christian, and I was getting drunk on weekends after football games. No thread in my life that made up the fabric of my life was running in any kind of coherent way with any other thread. I was just messed up. But this student government thing led me to get involved in politics a little bit, and it just so happened that in 1968, I was working on Ronald Reagan's campaign when he was running as a favorite son candidate for President of the United States when they had the, um, the, um, the convention in Miami. I was on the floor the night that Richard Nixon was nominated. I wasn't happy about it. I went out and got drunk. I wasn't a Christian then. But I'd worked on Reagan's campaign. I met him at least 35 times. I go to college and I become a Christian. The guys who led me to Christ, they were eager to tell other people about Jesus. It was during the days of campus unrest, the Vietnam War, all the protests that were going on. I went to Whittier College, which was Nixon's alma mater. We had ABC, NBC, and CBS news crews on our campus regularly. I don't think any of you maybe are even old enough to remember, but the news would come on. They'd give a clip of Cal Berkeley where so many riots took place. They'd give a clip of the Vietnam War and a clip of what was going on at Whittier College where I attended. Well, these guys who led me to Jesus, if there was a riot someplace, they would go. So we heard there was going to be a big riot at UCLA. I met some people here who went to UCLA. Anybody in here go to UCLA? Oh, I thought I met somebody who went there. Anyway, big riot at UCLA because the Board of Regents was going to vote to raise the tuition to the UC schools. There were thousands of students that showed up from UC uh, uh, Berkeley, from UC Santa Barbara, UC San Diego, UCLA, thousands and thousands of students for this big protest. They were going to let 40 students into the Board of Regents meeting. My two roommates and I got in. We weren't even UC students. We went to Whittier. <laughs> so we go in, and the, they pass out the agenda for the meeting. And we look on it, and you read down, about a third of the way down, it said, discuss the raising of tuition for the UC schools. Right underneath it, it says, time for student comment. So we've got the agenda. 
The regents haven't walked into the room yet. A few minutes later, they come walking into the room, and these students, the other uh, 37 of them, they just start screaming obscenities. They start picking up chairs and throwing them across the room. They just start erupting in protest in that meeting. The moderator gets up and he says, listen, we want you students in this meeting. You can see on the agenda, we've got room for student comment. But we've got other business to cover. If you disrupt the meeting again, you're out of here. As soon as he said that, they started throwing chairs across the room again. They started screaming obscenities and disrupting. Finally, the moderator says, you guys are out. The regents are sitting at that end of the room, and they walk out through a door at that end of the room to a room next door. There's a hallway here where the students are going out, and there's a door right there. I just go right through that door. As soon as I get through the door, there's Governor Reagan no more than six feet from me. I see him, and I go, Governor Reagan, my name's Jerry Root. I don't know if you remember me or not. I worked on your campaign in Miami, Florida last summer. Since that time, I've become a Christian. I'm here with a bunch of Campus Crusade for Christ people. We're sharing Jesus with people. I was wondering if you've ever heard of the four spiritual laws. <laughs> I had to say it quick. I knew he had to get back in his meeting. He comes up and puts his arm around me. He says, you know what, Jerry? I remember your face. I, I, I don't know if that's good or bad. <laughs> I remember your face. I didn't remember your name. He said... But I came back from Miami so discouraged. And I went to my pastor, Don Mumau, at Bel Air Presbyterian Church. And Don Mumau led me to Christ when I got back from Miami in 1968. And he says, as a matter of fact, next month, you say you're here with Campus Crusade for Christ people. I'm going up to Arrowhead Springs for a weekend of Bible studies with Bill Bright. He said, but listen, i got to get back into this regents meeting. How about if you share the four laws with three of my aides? And here's the, meeting, here's the room where I was with Reagan. He put me in an ante room next to that in this corner. And three of his aides are there, and I start reading the four spiritual laws to them. Now, my roommates had gone out. They told me later what happened outside. The students got on a bullhorn, and to those thousands of students out there, they said they kicked us out. They won't allow free speech. They didn't say, we so disrupted the meeting that your representation in that meeting got kicked out because of our obnoxiousness. No, they put the onus on the regents in the meeting. Well, the students, when they heard that, just started storming the building. They couldn't get in, but they started pounding on the walls. And I'm reading these, this, the four laws, these guys, and all of a sudden, no windows in this room, but there were transoms. Next thing I know, there's a beer bottle that breaks a window and comes in and breaks and glass breaks on the floor. Rocks are coming in, breaking glass. And I'm saying, and law two says that man is sinful and separated from God. <laughs> two of the guys get up and leave. One of the guys sits there through the whole thing and he says, I want to know more about this. I'll go with the governor when he goes up to Arrowhead Springs. Just then, I come out of the room. Right when I came out of the room, I see lights and cameras on at that end of the room. And I hear the reporter sort of live at UCLA at the riot. I hear the reporter say, we do know there was one student who was able to talk to the governor. And the lights and camera people are going like that. He turns around and looks at me, he says, there he is. And they all rush over and they say, what was it you said to the governor? And I start talking about Jesus on the live newscast. And they wanted to kink the hose, but there was nothing they could do about it. Our lives should read like the book of Acts. There's stuff going on all around. It doesn't always go that exciting, but sometimes it does. That's context evangelism. You find yourself in a context, you make the most of it. How about friendship evangelism? All of us could do this. I know people say, I don't like that contact evangelism. Context evangelism makes me nervous. I'm committed to friendship evangelism. And I say, how's it going? We'll, we'll say we're into friendship evangelism. We could be friends with people for years and we've never talked to them about spiritual things. And then the more they know about us, the harder it is because they see the incongruities in our life. Campus Crusade for Christ has a thing called sometime evangelism to use with friends. 
you say to a friend, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. I know your favorite sports teams. I know the names of all your children. I know where you go when you go on vacation. I know the books you like to read. I know the movies you like. But I realized the other day, I have never talked to you about spiritual things. And I think humans are more than material objects. We're psychological beings, we're sociological beings, we're political beings, but we're spiritual beings too. Do you think sometime I could hear your story? I feel like a horrible friend. I've never asked you about your spiritual story. Crusade says 98% of the people will say, yeah, sometime we can do that. Next time you see that friend, you don't talk about anything. The next time you see them, you say, do you remember when the other day you said sometime we could talk about this? How about if we go to breakfast this Saturday? I just want to hear your story. And you listen to their story. You know how they usually respond? What's your story? And you have a chance to share the gospel with this person who's been in your life for years, but you've never really crossed the line into the conversation where you talk about spiritual things. This isn't hard to do. It's actually kind of fun. And not only that, I think we can do it by using what's there. It was Elizabeth Barrett Browning who made the observation, every bush is a burning bush, and the world is crowded with God. And so we can just use the things that are around us. Um, I'll give you two quick examples. How much time do we have? I don't want to go over. We're doing okay? Okay. So, so um, I'll give you two, two quick examples. One, I had a young woman. I think, Peter, we were talking about this one the other night. I had a young woman who was in one of my classes. Her name was Pharaoh Shannon. Talk about an Irish name. There it is, Pharaoh Shannon. And she told me that her best friend was a student at Brown University and that she had a different spring break than we did, and her best friend was going to come uh, and visit her for the whole week. She wanted to know if she could bring her to class. Her best friend was an atheist. And I said, sure. It was a C.S. Lewis class. I said, sure, bring her to class. She wanted to know if I'd talk with her about spiritual things afterwards. So she comes to class, and we've already got a point of connection. Common friend, a common class she sat through, and so she comes up, and I said, uh, yeah, Pharaoh told me about you. You guys have been friends since kindergarten? How's that been? What a great privilege. Most people don't have friendships that last that long. Tell me about it. So they talk about their friendship. Then I said, she just told me, too, that you went to Brown University, an Ivy League school. You must be very bright. What are you studying? She said, I'm studying biochemistry. I said, wow, that's a challenging major. You're smarter than even my first impression. I said, but we talked about spiritual things in this class. So, so what did you think about that? She said, well, as a biochemist, and I thought it was a little premature because she was only a sophomore. <laughs> but she says, as a biochemist, I live by the principle, if I can't perceive it empirically, I just don't buy it. I said, that's the principle you live by? She said, yeah. I said, would you please set that principle forth for me empirically? <laughs> I hope you see the problem. She saw the incongruity. It's a proposition that's not set forth empirically. And she's freaking out. She says, nobody ever showed me the incongruity in my, in my philosophy before. She says, why, everybody at Brown University believes this. I said, no, no, no. There's Christians at Brown, too. They get everywhere. And I said, plus, there, I know a lot of materialists who wouldn't say that. So let's be fair to the materialists, too. I said, but here's the thing. I really like the sciences, and I'm grateful to God for them and for what scientists have done. I love the way the engineers have taken what the scientists have done and applied them to our lives so that our lives are lived better. We live in the cold tundra of Chicago. Our lives are light years better because of what the engineers have done with scientific discovery. The quality of our life is better. 
But I said to her, science isn't the only one of the divisions in a university that has merit and has something to say. I said, as a matter of fact, John Polkinghorne, who was a physicist at Cambridge University, England, with a PhD in physics and also a degree in theology, who was a president of one of the Cambridge University colleges and also pastor a church at the same time. He said, if you ask the scientists, why is the kettle boiling? The scientists will give you the bare measurable components, heat from the burners agitating the molecules, and at 100 degrees centigrade at sea level, it boils. He said, that's a good answer for the scientists. But he said, you could also answer the question, I wanted a cup of tea, and would you like one too? And the scientist, by mere scientific investigation, could never answer the second question. Can ask questions, answer questions about how do you know you love your wife or your husband? How do you know you love your children? And I said to her, Mortimer Adler, the philosopher at University of Chicago, said, in four generations, we've gone from saying that which is measurable is that which is important for science to saying that which is measurable is the only thing that's important. And something in our humanity has died in that process. I said, don't get me wrong. I love the sciences. But I'm in a university where we have four divisions, sciences, social sciences, fine arts, and humanities. And every one of them adds something to the conversation. And we want to be engaged in that conversation. I want to hear what the social scientists say about demography. What is the writing of the people? What are the views of people? If you want to communicate, you should know your audience. This is important. Uh, the social scientists in psychology and sociology have learned great information about what it is to be human by looking at these particular things. But you can't develop a transcendent morality from the changing opinions of culture, because culture is like the wind a lot of times. But I want to hear what the sociologists say and the psychologists and social sciences. But I said, but you also got the fine arts. And as J.R.R. Tolkien said, the fine arts tell us that humans are creative, that we're engaged in creative activity. We're engaged with issues related to beauty. And consequently, too, as Tolkien says, we're sub-creators because we're made in the image of a creator. It's interesting. You, 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 animals build things, right? But why? Beavers build dams. Birds build nests. Bees build hives. But they build it instinctually. They build it for survival. You never find the Baroque period of beaver dams. You never find the Georgian architecture period of bird's nests. You never find the uh, prairie architecture period of, which one did I leave out? Bees hives. No, we build things and decorate them. Why? Just for the joy of the beauty of the thing and the interest. I said, I want that conversation. I want the humanities there too. I want to hear what the historians, the philosophers, and those who are studying literature have to tell us. All of these things with a liberally educated person become contact points for the gospel. I look at the broad sweep of literature, history, and philosophy. I see some events that percolate, explode up like 4th of July fireworks and die down and you never hear about them. They're just stuck in that period of history. But there are some things that pop up generation after generation after generation. And those are interesting things because those express the deep, deep questions of what it means to be human. You know what was interesting? That woman came back to my class the next year. And you know what? She was an agnostic. That's progress. Sometimes we nudge just a little bit. One last area and then a concluding comment. All right, so I think you can use things in the culture to open up conversation. It was George MacDonald who made the observation, we do not have souls. We are souls. We have bodies. You tell a child he is a soul, he think, uh, you tell a child he has a soul, he thinks like anything else he has, his books, his keys, his lunch, he could leave it behind someplace while he goes off. You tell him he has a soul, he thinks when he dies, he goes to the grave and his soul goes off someplace else. Tell him he is a soul, 
and that when he dies, he goes off to heaven and he leaves behind his body like clipped hair on the barbershop floor or old clothes he's worn out. I think I can make a pretty good argument for what the soul is, the existence of the soul. I've read a lot of books on this. But I want you to know we're more than material beings. And I also want you to know that um, traditionally we say the soul has a thinking part, reason. It has a, a feeling part, the emotion. And it has a choosing part, the, reason, the, the, the volition, the uh, ability to choose. I want you to know, coming from an academic environment, the reason is hands down the weakest feature of our immaterial part. You see, if I make a bad choice, my reason doesn't say, boy, Jerry, that was really stupid. You need to change and repent of that lest you start hurting yourself by that bad choice or hurting the people who care for you. No, my reason being weak is marshaled by my will to make all kinds of excuses for that bad choice, to rationalize it, justify it. The kinds of things that Aristotle talked about in the Nicomachean Ethics, where he says that we engage in what he called acrasia. It's moral blindness. It's losing command of our moral lives by rationalizing bad behavior. He wrote in the Ethics, vice is unconscious of itself. C.S. Lewis put it this way, continued disobedience to conscience makes conscience blind. And Paul said, we suppress the truth in our unrighteousness. If I'm hurt emotionally, my reason doesn't say, Jerry, you need to forgive the person who hurt you. Grieve what they did so you could forgive them thoroughly and untether yourself from that hurtful experience. No, my reason, being weak, is marshaled by my emotion to keep that hurt suppressed, encapsulated in some sort of cyst on my soul. And while it fills with pus and bitterness, you bump up against me, I'll leak a little pus in your direction. No, my reason is weak. It keeps it suppressed. C.S. Lewis said reason stands often like dragon sentries monitoring what will get to my heart. And somebody comes with the gospel, and we've got all kinds of rationalizations and excuses. Lewis asked the question, how do you get past watchful dragons when all these excuses have been put in place? And sometimes, Lewis says, story works best to get past the watchful dragons. We who are Christians know this is true. Nathan the prophet gets the assignment, go tell David the adulterer who murdered to cover his crime, go tell him that God knows about this and he's in deep trouble. If you got the Nathan assignment, I don't know about you, David's already killed one person to cover up his sin. All the watchful dragons are up for David. What does Nathan do? Tells him a story. Jesus says there's a, there's a whole culture that has eyes but can't see, ears that can't hear. What did he do with that culture? He told stories, parables, analogies, so on. Sometimes stories work. I think you can use film in our culture. Uh, most people aren't reading much. They're certainly not reading novels much. But you could look at what the movies are and say, is there something here? Like The Notebook, like, uh, like Goodwill Hunting. I, when our kids were little, we didn't let them watch TV during the week. But on weekends, we'd let them watch movies. And we watched a lot of Disney movies together. One day, we were sitting there watching The Jungle Book, right? The adaptation of Rudyard Kipling's Jungle Book. And if you remember the story, Mowgli the boy gets lost from his parents. And he's found by Baloo the bear and Bagheera the panther. And they raise him and befriend him. And there's all the adventures they have, but always looming in the background is the fact that Shere Khan the tiger wants to kill the man-child. And then finally at the end of the movie comes the showdown when Baloo the bear, to protect the boy, throws himself into harm's way. And it looks like he gets killed, but lightning strikes the tiger, and the tiger goes running off and is never heard from again. But it looks like Baloo is dead. 
having given up his life to save the boy. Does that sound vaguely familiar to you, that story? So Bagheera the panther and Mowgli the boy are walking away, and they're looking back at their shoulder at the limp body of their dear friend Baloo, and Bagheera the panther says, Greater love hath this, that one would lay down his life for a friend. I said, that doesn't sound like Rudyard Kipling to me. I went and blew the dust off of my jungle book. It's nowhere in there. Where is that? John chapter 15. It's in the Bible. How did it get in that movie? Fast forward many years later, I was invited to come speak to the Disney artists. Once a month, they bring in a speaker to talk about story just to keep their artists pumped up that what we're doing is a good thing. We're telling stories that are giving our culture some sort of voice and understanding of their experience. And so they asked me to come talk about Lewis and Tolkien's vision of story. They told me in the office, here's what we're going to do. Our artists are going to come in this huge tiered classroom. There's room for 350 artists to sit in their chairs. It's where they often will have conceptual drawing. Somebody's down in front. They're drawing pictures to come up with what the next characters are going to look like in their movie. They hand them a box lunch as they come in. The person giving the lecture lectures for 45 minutes, and then it takes questions for 45 minutes from the artists. They do this once a month. So they said to me, listen, we know Lewis and Tolkien were Christians. If you have to mention their Christianity as part of their vision of story, that's okay, but this isn't a place to proselytize. I say, I don't need to proselytize. And I'm thinking to myself, if these people get into these authors, these authors are going to speak to them long after I'm gone. No problem. But they also told me, when you have the Q&A time, whatever our artists ask, you can answer freely. So I give the lecture. Time for Q&A, first question. Weren't Lewis and Tolkien Christians? Could you tell us about that? First question. <laughs> Second question. Wasn't Aslan in the Narnian books a Christ figure? Could you tell us about that? Next question. Were there any Christ figures in the Lord of the Rings, like when Tolkien gives up his life against the Balrog to save the fellowship, and he dies as Gandalf the Grey and comes back as Gandalf the White? Is that resurrection anything like what we read in the Bible? Wasn't it Tolkien who had a hand in leading C.S. Lewis to faith? Could you tell us about that conversation? Every question was along that line. I'm freaking out. <laughs> Gospel's been preached, in a sense, to the Disney artists. The 45 minutes of Q&A are over. The artists go back to work. 20 artists come up to talk to me. I'm looking at them. They're the ones that were asking the questions. They said, you're a Christian, aren't you? I said, yeah. Are you? They said, yeah, why do you think we were asking you the questions? <laughs> they were using it as an opportunity to share with their friends. But here it is. I said to them, okay, this is my turn to ask you a question. How did greater love hath no man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends, get in a Disney film? They said, well, there's always been artists here since the very beginning who have been Christians who have smuggled stuff in. They said, not only that, there are other artists who aren't Christians who have also been smuggling stuff in. It's a saw that cuts both ways. Anyway, this is interesting to me. So I, I have seen James Cameron interviewed many times. Do you know who he is, the movie producer? I've seen him interviewed many times. Every time I've seen him interviewed, he takes a swap, swipe at Christians. He doesn't like us. I don't know why. Maybe he was hurt by a Christian. Something, something's happened. But every time he makes a movie, have you noticed? He tells our story. Terminator 2. An alien from another world comes to our world and gives up his life to save the woman and her child. Does that sound vaguely familiar? The next movie he makes spends more money than has ever been spent on a movie before. $200 million. It was the Titanic. He makes a set one quarter the size of the original Titanic. He's got to have great music, so he gets Celine Dion and her ascendancy to do the music. 
He's got to have good box office draws. So he gets Kate Winslet and Leonardo Di DiCaprio to be the acting. Has incredible special effects. He's got everything together, and he's got investors who are going to go after his hide if he doesn't have a good return. By the way, it was the first movie that ever made a billion dollars. What is the story he's going to tell? And he goes to the one story that always works, our story. There's a guy named Jack, and he wins in a poker game a ticket to the doomed ship. He goes immediately to the bow of the ship, makes the shape of the cross, and says, I am king of the world. <laughs> There's a woman stuck on that ship in circumstances not of her making. Her father's died and left the family penniless. Her mother says, I will not live out my life as a washerwoman. So the mother has promised her in marriage to a guy who's like the devil incarnate, and they're all trapped on that doomed ship. And this girl sees no way out. She goes to the stern of the ship, and she's going to take her life. And Jack just happens to be there and saves her. They bring the old lady now back after they've discovered the Titanic's ruins. They say, we want to hear your story of that night. And she tells the story about how Jack saves her life. And once he gets her up on that platform in the water, just as mysteriously as he came on the ship, he disappears. And they say, we have no record of him on the ship's log. And she says, and isn't that incredible? Yet he saved me in every way. Does that story sound familiar to you? What's the next movie Cameron makes? Avatar. A man takes on the flesh of that world and goes into that world <laughs> to save that world. What does Avatar mean? Incarnation. In Sanskrit, it means incarnation. Cameron knows exactly what he's doing. Why is this? Because this story moves all of us. That the God of the universe loved us, entered into our world, enters into our brokenness because he wants to redeem us and woo us to himself. And as we discover the greatness of that story, he also deploys us into the world. As we're mending, he sends us that we might share with others the beauty of that story. Okay? It's kind of cool. You got the message. You get to tell people in your context. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege of considering these things. We know we're messed up, Lord. We don't deny that. We know we need your love. We know we need your forgiveness. We thank you that you've lavished it upon us. We, we, we know too, Father, that we still make mistakes. The relevancy of the gospel in our life is not something that is casual, but it's constant. Out of that awareness, I pray that you would build in us an enthusiasm for letting the gospel be known to the other people around us. And I pray for every person in this room that they would have great joy in the telling. And if somebody rebuffs them or is hard-nosed with them, don't let them be deflected by that. Keep them inclined because there are people out there who want to know your son has told us it's so. And let us have fun. And I pray that every person in this room would have Acts 29 kinds of adventures throughout their lives. And that they would have joy even telling those stories to friends and encouraging one another on the great work that you've called us to do. We ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen.